y'all. 6 p.m., good to be with you folks. If you have your Bibles, open it up to Matthew chapter 25. That's where we're going to be tonight. Uh, I'm excited to bring the word for us and to set some background or uh, context for the scripture that we're going to break open together. Uh, Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples. And if you ever want to know how to fully understand the Bible and get some truth from it, you always got to know context. And so Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples and he's replying or answering a question that was brought up. And this is what the question was. uh, What is the end of the world going to look like? Pretty deep question. And so Jesus starts to break down really what that will be. And so he starts to give some description and some details about what to look for as far as signs and so forth within uh, the society. And uh, some people would say that we're kind of living in an end times right now. And so a lot of what Jesus was saying was going over the head heads of the disciples. You ever had a conversation with someone where they're not picking up what you're laying down? You can kind of tell that they're not tracking with you. And so Jesus goes into story mode. The genius of Jesus is he starts to break down stories to illustrate what he was trying to say. He says three parables. And the parables basically are short stories with biblical truths attached to it. And so he tells three stories back to back to back to illustrate the point or answer the question, what will the end of the world look like? And so the first parable he tells about 10 10 virgins. Uh, The second one, uh, which is what we're going to look at tonight, is about uh, the 10 uh, or the the parable of the talents or the bags of gold. And the last one is about the the parable of the sheep and the wolves. And here's really what the essence of those three parables are. The first one is about uh, depending on the gospel. The second parable is about declaring the gospel. And the third parable is about really demonstrating the gospel. And so we're going to look further into the second parable to help us to understand this beyond life that God wants us to live, a life not just for ourselves but beyond ourselves that glorifies God and impacts other people. So Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 to 30, we're going to unpack 16 verses together. So I love the Word of God. It's truth, and it will transform us. And so again, Here's what it says. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. If you have a Bible, physical Bible, underline that part. Entrusted his wealth to them. That's an important detail. To one, he gave five bags of gold. To another, two bags. And to another, one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags bags more. He doubled it, or what the youth would say, they secured the bag. That's what they would say about that. Verse 17, so also one with two bags of gold gained two more, also doubling it. Verse 18, here's a switch. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five, Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came and said the same thing to the master. I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. The same reply that he had with the first servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Verse 24, then the man who had received one bag, say one bag. One bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew 
that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seeds. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you, basically giving back to the master what was given to him. Here's the master's response. The master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. Ouch. Pretty harsh. So you knew that I I harvested where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I return, I would have, have received it back with interest. Verse 28. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has already had, who has 10 bags. But he already has 10. Here's why. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We're going to look at that, and I want to preach a message to us tonight from this premise. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Turn to your neighbor and tell him that. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. If you're ready for the word of God tonight, say yeah. If you're ready for God to speak to your heart, say oh yeah. Oh yeah, we're going to allow God to speak to us. So join with me as we pray. God, we thank you for your truth. This word is transformative, God. It's not just books, uh, letters on a page, and it's not just an ordinary book, but this book has life, God. And we want this truth that brings life to breathe into our hearts, God, so that when we hear it and we apply it, it will bring transformation from the inside out. So Lord, we want to hear from you, not a preacher. We want your spirit to resonate within our lives. And so we posture ourselves to hear from you. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that is soft, open, and receptive for what you want to speak to us today. We thank you for your word. Let it change us from the inside out. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Don't waste your life. Anyone here ever had a roommate before? So in preparation for me being married, I decided to uh, have a roommate for two purposes. One, to help me to understand the rhythms of what it will be like living with someone else. Because how many of us know living with someone else takes some maneuvering? It takes some chemistry to make that relationship work. And so I knew that if I'm going to spend the rest of my life with someone, I need to adjust. And so having a roommate would help me to do that. But also was to help with finances. Because how many of us know getting married isn't cheap? And on that note, dying isn't also cheap. So just living life and dying is expensive. But that's another message in itself. And so, um, you know, living with a roommate, understanding what that was like has been great. And uh, before I get into the story, I want to just let you know two things. One, uh, this person was probably one of the best roommates that anyone could ask for, uh, very thoughtful and clean and so forth. And the second thing is this, we're still friends to this day because oftentimes friendships are dissolved because of living together. And so for us, we uh, broke past that and we're able to still be friends to this day and I enjoy him. He's Definitely a good friend of mine. But we had a particular incident that I want to share with us tonight that kind of became a sticking point within our uh, living together situation. And so I came home one day and I noticed that the area in which we were wash clothes, which which was kind of like a patio area, I noticed that it was open and that uh, wash was done. And so being a good roommate that I am, I figured I'll go and help out. There's the clothes in the washer, I'll take it out, throw it in the dryer. That was my thought process. And so when I went to the washing machine, what I saw shocked me. I was appalled. I was befuddled and 
flabbergasted and all kinds of big words that I looked up to make this point because what I saw really shocked me. To my dismay, I opened up the washer door to find out that an entire cycle of wash happened, but in it was only a small rag. Small rag. Think 24-hour fitness rag when they were handing those out, okay? That's exactly what it was. Not a towel. A towel would make sense. We're not talking a towel. We're talking about a rag, a small rag about the size of this. And so I'm thinking, why would anybody run an entire wash cycle for one rag? So before I jump to conclusions, I, you know, believe the best. That's what the Bible says we got to do. Believe the best. And so when my roommate came home, I asked him, what's up with the wash, brother? You have one rag in there. And he proceeds to tell me his reasoning for washing only one rag. My dog at the time was being potty trained, and so he was being a good roommate to help clean up because he made a mess. And so he used the rag to clean up the mess. But because he didn't want to throw other clothes with the wash, because that would have made the other clothes kind of stinky and so forth, he thought, let's just run one cycle. I would think, throw the rag away, but he thought, you know, let's just wash one rag. And so I don't know if you know this about me, about I'm quarter Chinese, and when he's telling me this story, I'm thinking, one, you're wasting water, wasting electricity, wasting detergent, and wasting time. Why would you wash one rag? Like, throw that thing away, right? Anybody would agree with me, like, that's just kind of weird, and so we can laugh about that story today, but it wasn't a laughing matter when we were having this discussion. I was irritated that he would do such a thing like that. One rag. Why would you wash an entire load, a cycle of wash for one rag? Thinking about it now, looking back at it, you know, the water can be replaced, the detergent can be replaced, even the rag could be replaced. Uh, all of that stuff in the big scope of things isn't important. But it got me thinking about things that are important. Because unlike a rag, our lives, we only get one life. We only get one shot to do this thing called life right. We don't have a hanahou. We don't have a mulligan. We don't have a do-over. We literally get one chance, one opportunity to live this thing called life. And I don't know about you, I want to make sure that I'm giving my time and my energy and my efforts to maximizing this brief life that we have here on this earth. I shared this story with my wife, and my wife, you know, if you don't know anything about her, she's like uh, Mary, mother of Jesus. She is not preachy, but she drops some biblical truths, and so I'm telling her this story, and she goes, well, Jesus would leave the 99 for the one. Talking about the one rag, you know, Jesus would leave the 99 for the one. And you know what my response to her was? Jesus would leave the 99 for the one. Because she's true. What she's trying to say is there's value in one life. So our life has value, but the lives of other people also have value as well. So for us, we can't just spend all of our days living for ourselves. We also have to be thinking beyond ourselves to impact the lives of other people. Because if you know this or not, all of our lives are like a stone gets, that gets thrown into a pond. There's a ripple effect. And for good or for bad, our lives and our actions and our words will always have a ripple effect that impacts the people around us. And so what God is trying to get us to understand is how we are to live in light of the world possibly ending. Or how we are should, should be living our lives in light of this brief life that you and I have. And so Jesus shares this parable explaining 
what he wants us to have, the mindset and the attitude that you and I should have in living out our lives. And so we're going to look at this story and pull out three truths, and then we're going to break it down to give us some lessons that we can learn from this story. So the first truth is this. God has entrusted us with resources to steward for his purpose. God has entrusted all of us with resources to steward for his purpose. So 14 and 15 verses, 14 and 15 says this. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five, to another two, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. So the servants in the story were entrusted with wealth. The question I have for us is this. Whose wealth was it? It was the master's wealth. The master entrusted wealth, generous wealth, to the servants, and their responsibility as servants was to steward or to be managers of that wealth. And for us, to understand what a steward is, a steward basically does two things. It protects and expands the assets of another person on their behalf. And so for us to make that make sense for us, all of us probably have a bank account. And really, what we're doing in relationship with the bank account is this, or, or the bank, is we're giving our resources to the bank to steward it. When we deposit money into a bank, the mindset that we have is they're going to be a steward of the resources that we deposit there. And you and I, we all have two expectations when it comes to what we put into a bank. We expect them to protect it, and we expect them to expand it with interest. And so if you ever went to check your account, you're thinking, it better have at least what I put in there and a little bit more. Could you all agree? And if you had investments and stuff like that, don't look at it now because you're going to be discouraged because a lot of your investments is taking a hit today. Uh, but within the bank account, you're thinking, man, if I put money in there, they better give me something, 25 cents or something. Give me some money back, right, for the money that I put in there. All of us would be irritated if we went into it looking at our bank account statement noticing less money in there. We would be shocked. We would call the bank immediately. We would be even more shocked if what we put in there is not even there anymore, right? You would be mad. What happened to my money? So God has that same mindset that we have in regards to our bank accounts. God has entrusted everything that we have in our lives to us. We're not owners of anything. We're stewards of things that he's generously given to us in our lives. So what this parable is telling us is this. God owns everything and everything we have in our lives. He's the owner. We're the stewards. We're the managers. He's the owner, and we're just managing what he has given to us, and God has that same expectation, that we will protect it, but we will also expand it for his kingdom to advance. The NIV, in this translation of the passage that we're looking at, doesn't say bags of gold, but the NIV uses this term talent. And a talent basically would be a unit of currency. So for us to understand what that looks like for us today, a talent really was like a large sum of money. It literally was 20 years worth of wages. How many of us know that's a lot of money? So 20 years worth in today's terms, the average person in America makes about 70000 a year, which is great on the mainland, and it's poverty here in Hawaii, but that's another story. So 70000 
times 20 would be about $1.4 million. How many of us know that's a lot of money? We're not talking chump change here. The master generously gave the servants, the first servant, or the last servant who had won, $1.4 million to steward. If you had that amount of money, would you just give that to random people? No, you would give it to trustworthy people, right? And so the manager in this story, God, is trying to illustrate to us that we all have something in our lives that have been given to us by him. And it's not just chump change. We're talking valuable resources, skills and abilities that he's entrusted to us to live not for us, but for his purpose. And so each servant was given a different amount. And the key in this story tells us why they were given what they were given. It was according to their ability. The master knew the servant so well that he knew who to give more to and who to give less to. That's the kind of loving master that we have in our lives. He entrusts us with things that match the ability that we have in our lives. God don't give you more than you can handle, but he also doesn't give you less than you can handle. He gives you exactly what you can handle and what you can steward with your life. That's the loving father that we serve. And so one might argue, that's not fair, because why would the person with five have more than me? And it's not a comparison thing, but really, fairness isn't a biblical principle. The Bible doesn't really emphasize things being fair. God is sovereign. He's the author and the creator of everything. And because of that, he can choose who he gives stuff to. He's in charge. We're just the servants. We're just stewards of what he's generously given to all of us. So don't get caught up in the amount of things that we're given. Put your focus onto what he's entrusted to you in your life. Because what we see here is all of us has been generously giving things by God to steward. So for believers, God has entrusted us with three things to steward. Time, talents, and treasures. These are the three things that God wants us to steward with our lives. So time, the day-to-day context in which kingdom opportunities arise. There's opportunities that happen every day. As time is happening, we need to maximize these opportunities for God's kingdom to advance. Talents, abilities, or skills that are gifts from God to develop and use for kingdom purposes. The thing about gifts, talents, and skills, we can use that to advance our personal kingdom, or we can use that to advance God's kingdom. You and I decide what we want to do with the resources that have been given to us by God. But God wants us to use it for kingdom purposes. And the last thing that he's given to us to steward is treasures or financial resources. Our money isn't just for our enjoyment. It's for kingdom advancement. You need financial resources to advance the kingdom of God. And so much like the servants in the Bible, God has entrusted us with different things. There's no one who has exactly the same thing. So we all have been given a variety of different gifts as the Bible would describe. And our focus is not to look at what other people have. Our focus is to look at what we have been given to grow what we've been given for the advancement of God's kingdom. Or to say it in another way, to love God and to love people. So for us, the question that I'm asking all of us to reflect on is this. What are you doing with what you've been given? What are you doing 
with what you've been given. Because God wants us to use all of these resources to make him known to the world around us. Second point that we're going to look at is this. God will call us to account for how we stewarded our lives. So the man who had received five bags of gold went at once, say at once, and put his money to work and gave five bags more. At once, the two servants in the story immediately start to put it to work. The truth for us to understand from that brief uh, passage is this. Delayed obedience is disobedience. The longer we take to be obedient to the things that God has placed on our hearts reveals the maturity in our relationship with God. What I mean by that is this. The quicker our response to obey, the more mature we are in faith. The longer it takes for us to obey reveals how immature we are in trusting God with our lives. So as we grow in our faith, how you know you're growing in your faith is the time it takes for God to say something and for us to respond. That's a short window. We immediately say yes, like the song that we just sang, and we start to walk out what God has placed on our hearts in obedience. Verse 17, so also one with two bags of gold gained two more, so they both doubled it. But the one who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned, and here's the kicker, settled accounts with them. When the world ends, and when Jesus returns, there are going to be two judgments. Uh, the first judgment is for unbelievers, and the second judgment is for believers. The first judgment is whether or not you've had faith in Jesus Christ. There's a penalty for sin. And if you don't have Jesus who paid the penalty for that sin, we're going to have to pay that penalty ourselves. And what that means is an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. So the first judgment is relationship to where we're going to spend our eternity. The second judgment for believers is based on this idea on how we're going to spend our eternity. So the first one is for unbelievers. The second one is for believers. And for how we're going to spend our eternity, what God is looking at is how well we've stewarded our lives. God is going to have a conversation with each and every believer, asking them difficult questions about what did you do with the resources that I gave you to steward. So today, this parable is not looking at the first judgment, it's looking at the second judgment. And uh, recently, we, uh, my wife and I, we were trying to get our finances in order, and uh, since we had our son, uh, a lot of our way we've been managing our finances, we're kind of just adjusting, so to speak. And so our financial advisor, which is a good friend of mine, uh, who basically sees everything, all our transactions and so forth, called us to not only set up some life insurance things to make sure that, you know, the next generation or my son is well off if anything happened to us, but she was also asking us difficult questions about our spending. Because within the last six months, ever since my son came, uh, we were kind of getting out of hand with the, the spending. If I'm honest in church, because we want to be honest in church, we were swiping a lot at everything. And how many of us know when you're swiping, you're just kind of out of sight, out of mind? How many of us really manage, like, look at our, you know, our accounts as far as how much money we're spending? And so we were just kind of paying it off in full, but not really managing our amount of swiping. And so our financial advisor, who loves us a lot, asked us some difficult questions. Hey, I noticed within the last couple months, your spending has been getting out of control. And in my head, I'm thinking, you know, we're buying necessary things for my son, adjusting to this new life and so forth, and trying to figure out a rhythm. And because we're trying to raise my son, I noticed that, or she noticed that, a lot of our spending went to food, fast food. 
not cooking our own food, but, you know, ordering out. And how many of us know that can get expensive real quick? Like, McDonald's don't have a dollar menu anymore. It's just expensive anywhere. Fast food is not cheap. And so we were spending a lot of our money on, on food and stuff. And then she started to notice other areas. What about all of these entertainments and shoes and so forth? Don't mind the shoes. That's me. I'm thinking, stop looking at that kind of stuff. Why are you getting all nosy, right? But because she loved us, here's what she said. If you guys continue with that spending, you're spending more than you're making. And if you continue in that habit long term, you're not only going to make a mess of your life, but you're also going to have a negative effect on your son. You're spending way more than you're making. Right now you have savings, so it's okay. But if you continue with this habit of how you're managing your resources, finances, it's not only going to negatively impact your life, but it's also going to negatively impact your son's life. And she's telling me all of these things. You know what I was thinking? I'm trying to make excuses for stuff. Well, we got to buy this and this and this. And don't worry about that. You know, you start to try to justify your actions. But at the end of the day, she was right. Our spending got out of control and we needed to tighten up and buckle down. As much as I wanted to weasel my way out of that conversation, I knew I couldn't because the truth was right in front of our face. You know, God is going to have that same kind of conversation with us. And here's the thing. We're not going to be able to weasel our way around it. He's going to ask us. And he's actually going to show us what we did with our lives. He's going to give us 4K. I don't know anything higher maybe when Jesus comes back. Maybe it's 20K. But he's going to give us 4K scenes from our life that will help us to see what we really did. And the thing about God is this. He knows our motivation too. So we can't pull his leg we can't fake the funk with God. He knows our hearts. And so when it comes to that point where he's asking us these difficult questions, we're just going to have to be honest about what we did with our lives. That's how it's going to be. So my task as a pastor who lovingly wants to encourage the flock is to say, to get us ready. Because that conversation is going to happen. And we want to make sure that when we're having that conversation with God, that we have Great experiences because we were living with a sense of urgency, not just for ourselves, but to impact the people around us, stewarding his resources in a way that advanced God's kingdom. So all of us would have a conversation about God or with God about the life that we lived and the resources that he's generously given to us. Third thing that we're going to see from this passage is this, how we steward our lives and resources where we determine let me say that again. How we steward our lives and resources will determine our eternal reward. So even though the one with five had way more resources than the one with two, both of them received the same blessing. The master said the exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. Because it wasn't about the amount. It was about the effort that the servants did to steward what they were given. So even though the five doubled it, the one with two also doubled it, put the same amount of work. And God, being a loving God, gave them the same response. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share it in your master's happiness. Notice that you see here that the master said good and faithful servant, not good and fruitful servant. So God is after our faithfulness, not our fruitfulness. Why? Because fruitfulness... Is beyond our control. We can only control our faithfulness, what we do, the effort that we put into a situation. The outcome of these situations isn't in our control. It's in God's control. 
But the Bible also tells us that when we abide or are in close relationship with God and we're connected with him, the fruit of that is a life of impact. So we're not called to make fruit. We're called to bear fruit. So bearing fruit comes in relationship of being connected with the source of fruit, which is God himself. So he's looking for us to be faithful, not necessarily fruitful. And the eternal reward that we see here is being in charge of many things. So many people think heaven is just all about us worshiping and there's going to be worship in heaven. But the stewardship that we begin here on this earth will continue in eternity. God is going to give us responsibilities in heaven. He's going to give us things to manage, things to do. And so what we start here will also continue into eternity. So how we live here now will determine the amount of things that God can entrust us in eternity. So what we're doing now is not for any other reason than to set us up for eternity. So the third servant had a different response. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. So I was afraid, check that, and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. So the servant saw the master as two things, as, as a hard man, actually one thing, as a hard man, and his response to seeing the master as a hard man was fear. And because he was afraid, he did nothing about it. He didn't do what the master told him to do. Why? Because he had a wrong view of God. My encouragement to you tonight is this. How you view God will also determine how you respond to God. If you see God as a mean God and he brings fear into your life in a negative way, it's going to shape the decisions that you make with your life today. So what I want to try to help us to see is that God is a loving father. He's generous and he's encouraging to all of us. And so if we see him in that capacity, it would motivate us to maximize the life that we have. The master's reply to him is kind of interesting. He says this, you wicked, lazy servant. That sounds pretty harsh, right? Now, when I was thinking about this, the servant didn't go crazy with the resources given to him. He didn't go out spending it on worthless things. He didn't do what the prodigal son did and wasted his money on wild living and so forth. He wasn't being wicked and partying and doing all kinds of crazy things. He literally just gave back the master to the master 100% of what the master had given to him. He didn't give him back a, a briefcase with IOUs saying, I'm going to get you back, God. He just returned to the master what the master gave, it, gave to him. But the master called him wicked. So for us, we got to understand this, is that a failure to invest your life to the fullest potential is seen by God on the same wavelength as living a sinful, crazy life separated from him. Did you get that? So us not maximizing our life to the fullest is on the same level as us wasting our lives doing meaningless, sinful things. Wickedness in God's eyes can also be seen as not stewarding your resources for his kingdom purposes. That's crazy. So the master didn't want his money back. That's not the stewardship that he demanded. He wanted faithfulness with what was given to actually have some sort of return in the process. So he tells them, if you're really afraid, you should have just put it into the bank and allowed the bank to generate interest. So what the master noticed is that the servant was just giving lame excuses. You ever gave God some lame excuses? 
God, I kind of go to church every week. Man, I got stuff to do. Things happen. Life happens. And then somebody asks, oh, you can wake up 6 o'clock in the morning to go golf. Bet, I'm there. Because what does that reveal to us? Our priorities reveal what we give our energy and efforts to. If we really wanted to do something, we'll make a way to make it happen. But at the end of the day, sometimes what we give God is just lip service. We give him excuses. Now, the essence of this message isn't to bring condemnation to everyone, but it's also to shine light that we have oftentimes lame excuses that we give God with. So the reality was the servant didn't want to do what the master asked him to do. In fact, he just wanted to spend his life living for himself, which is really what the master was mad at. I heard one commentary said this is, because a, a talent is about a million dollars or more than a million dollars, they didn't have cash like we have cash. They actually had like physical gold and stuff like that that would accumulate to have that amount of money. So $1.4 million in like material is a lot of material. Think like bags and bags of gold. So for the servant to actually bury that would take a lot of effort to dig a, a hole the size of a pool to put all of that resources in that puka, and then to bury it will take a lot of energy. So it wasn't that he couldn't do it. He was just wasting his life doing meaningless things. He still had the same energy. It was just wasted. And I wonder if many of our life is just wasted doing meaningless stuff, things that will not have any eternal impact, that we're just getting by doing life our own way, living for ourselves and so forth, and wasting the valuable time that's been given to us because we're not living for him, we're living for us. So to dig that kind of a hole, show that he had energy, it just was doing meaningless stuff. So God is trying to let us to see, uh, get us to see that he wants us to live with a focus for our life. And so here's three things that we can do. Lessons from this parable that we should apply to our lives today. First lesson that we can learn is this. Comparison, write that down, will always keep us stuck. Comparing our lives to other people will always keep us stuck. We don't see any sign of comparison between the one who had five and the one who had two. Five talent people are those who can do anything well, kind of like Pat. Pat can sing, dance, do all kinds of stuff, play instruments and all that. Really, the, the gifts and skills that I wish God generously given to me, but he didn't, so I can't compare but the two-talent guy is kind of like the average though. It's like many of us. We fall into the two-talent category. And so we don't see any comparison between the two-talent and the five-talent guy. We don't see the two-talent guy saying this. Well, if I had five talents, you know, I would really maximize my life. Like, give me five and tell you I'm going to live, do this. I'm going to be generous here and so forth. But because you only gave me two, there's only so much that I can do with what I've been given. So when we start to compare our lives to other people, you know what happens? Two things happen. It would either lead to being conceited, or us being condemned. And neither of that advanced the kingdom of God. So God doesn't want us to be conceited. He doesn't want us to be condemned. He, want us, he wants all of us to have a proper understanding of what we've been given. So the focus is not on what we have and what other people have. The focus is being content with what we've been given. So the antonym for comparison is contentment. Putting our focus on what we have, and being thankful for what God has generously given to us. 
You know, you don't need to wait for Thanksgiving to be thankful. That as believers, we can actually cultivate a life of Thanksgiving every single day. And so when you find yourself comparing your life to other people, the way that you combat that is by being content and cultivating gratitude and thanking God for what he's given to us. And when we do that, it'll help us to maximize the life that God has given us. Second thing we need to apply is this. Great intentions don't change anything. Here's a lesson for us. Great intentions don't change anything. The master said the same thing I say when someone asks me how I like my steak. Master said, well done. Okay? Here's what he didn't say. He didn't say, well said. He didn't say, well thought. Because for us, intentions lie in what we say and what we think, and it just stays there. The master said, well done. There's something about accomplishing something and putting action to our thoughts and our words that the master or God is really after. You can't build a reputation on what, you, what you're going to do, says Henry Ford. We can't build a life saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Really, our reputation comes from not what we say we're going to do, but what we're actually going to do with our lives. So our intentions needs to be intentional. Let me say something else. We got to do something about the things that we intend to do. Les Brown says something that really convicted me, and because it convicted me, I want to share it with you. He says this, the graveyard is the richest place on earth because it is here that you will find all the hopes and dreams that were never fulfilled, the books that were never written, the songs that were never sung, the inventions that were never shared, the cures that were never discovered, all because someone was too afraid to take that first step, keep with the problem, or determine to carry out their dream. Good intentions never turned into good actions. And God will only judge us according to our actions, not our intentions. So for us, we need to follow through with some of the things that God has told us to do. So my question to us tonight is this. What is that one thing that you said you were going to do that you never got around to doing? There's no bum by in the kingdom of God. We got to put some feet to the things that God has placed on our heart. Last thing we see here is obedience always involves risk. Write that down, risk. Obedience to God will always involve some level of risk. Playing it safe is not safe in the kingdom. We got to do something about it. And the Christian life is a call to risk. It's not a call to comfort. It's a call to risk. We're going to either live with risk or we're going to waste our lives. Abraham had to risk it all when God told him to follow me to go to a place that I'm going to tell you. God didn't even have the audacity to tell Abraham where he was supposed to go. Abraham packed up an entire family and went to a place God says, I am going to show you. So if you're waiting for all the details to be clear before you take a step, you might be waiting forever. God wants us to move, and as we move, he makes things clear. The more steps we take, the clearer the picture is going to be. So Abraham needed to risk it to walk in obedience. Moses had to risk it all when he led the people out of slavery in Egypt into where God had them. 
you know, he must have been nervous when he came to the Red Sea. And he got the sea over here on one end, and he got the Egyptians chasing after him on the backside. And he was like, God, I don't know what to do, God. You got to show up. And God just told him, stick out your staff. And God parted the sea right in front of him, and the whole nation walked on dry ground. And when they got to the other side, God had a bigger plan in mind. He ended up destroying all the enemies. That was a sign that he wanted them to know that they're free from that life of slavery. But Moses had to risk it. He didn't have any guarantees. He had to trust God every step of the way. David had to risk it all when he fought Goliath. He had no idea that God was going to show up and have his grace on that little stone that he threw that hit Goliath. But he stepped up in faith. And when we step up in faith, God always shows up in our lives. But it's going to take us to risk our comfort to step into the calling that he has for us. And so my question as we wrap up tonight is this. What are the risks God wants you to do or maybe calling you to do coming out of this message? What are some of the risks? Maybe a risk for you is to start a new ministry that God has put on your heart or to serve in one of our ministries here at church. Maybe the risk that God put on your heart is to start pursuing adoption, taking in people into your family, caring for them in the same way that God has cared for us. Or maybe your risk is to change careers, that you're comfortable where you're at, but you know that God has called you to something else. Maybe it's to start your own business, or maybe it's to pursue a different calling that's going to be a risk that God wants you to take. Or maybe it's a risk to become a missionary or a church planter if you're part of this church. That's what God has called us to do as a church. And maybe God has put this vocational ministry on your heart. Or maybe it's something a little closer to heart. Maybe it's simply forgiving someone. God, I don't know what's going to happen if I forgive them. God's going to free your heart. But it's going to take a risk for you to have that conversation with that person. Asking for forgiveness. Or extending forgiveness. Maybe it's sharing Christ with a friend or a coworker, and you're waiting for the right moment and the opportunity that all the stars will align for you to really share your faith. And God is just saying, man, open your mouth and I'll open their heart. Maybe it's trying to reorder your marriage God's way and you realize that the marriage is coming to a point that needs some changing and you've done it your way that's gotten you into that mess. And maybe God is saying, maybe it's time to get some counseling or get some help for people to help you get your marriage back on track. Maybe it's obeying God and operating business when everybody else around you is doing some shady things. God wants you to operate with integrity, trusting him with how you run the company. Or maybe it's just to be obedient with your finances. God, it's, it's all about you. Maybe I got to start tithing today or being generous with my finances. I don't know what it is that God is putting on your heart, but I know this. It's going to take some risk. It's not going to be easy, but when we trust him, he's going to show up and show out and amaze us with the things that he wants to do in and through us. As we come to a close, Tim Tebow, probably known as one of the most decorative college athletes, won two national championships, the Heisman Trophy, and had a lot of expectations going into the NFL. But some would say, because of what he did in college, that he was an NFL bust. He didn't really amount to much in the NFL. In fact, he's kind of known as one of the, you know, mistakes as far as drafting goes on the field. But many people don't know what he was doing off the field. So a lot of people, we put our hope in, like, NFL teams and stuff like that and your fantasy football things and so forth, and we want you to excel in that capacity. Tim Tebow wasn't excelling off the field. He has a Tim Tebow foundation. All of it is 
geared to helping underprivileged youth and so forth. And so he's been helping with sex trafficking, providing medicine for those in need, and also helping with special needs. And he's doing all of this under the banner of his foundation. So in the kingdom's eyes, he's actually making a huge impact. He says something at a conference that I feel like is going to encourage us because it really challenged me. So take a look at what he says on screen. There's a picture that I stumbled across, and it's one of Time's 100 most influential images of all time. And it's the picture of this young girl. She's on her way from her village to a feeding center not far away. And she's so malnourished, and she's moving so slow that this vulture is waiting to attack. So the young man that took this picture, I think there was probably something in his heart that he, he wanted to do good, he just, he wasn't sure, so, so he, he captured this picture, and he just waited, and, and then the vulture got closer, so he kind of shooed the vulture off, and then he walked away, and the vulture would come right back. And he was told, because of some of the sicknesses in the areas, don't touch anybody, don't do anything, and so he didn't. He didn't. He did nothing. Because apparently the cost was too much. So he left. He went back, the New York Times published this photo in 1993. In 94, he won the Pulitzer Prize for this photo. Four months after this, he chose to end his life. You see, every single one of us we have a chance to be successful in life. And you know what? I hope you are. I really do. I, I hope you're successful. There's nothing wrong with being successful. But success is just about you. But significance is about other people. You see, that man that took that picture, he had success. That's one of the greatest honors a photographer could ever have. But obviously it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. So what's going to be enough for you? You see, success is great. You can do a lot of things with it. But it's not going to be fulfilling. And you can never forget that sense of urgency that it's not about your timeline, it's about their timeline. While you might have 30, 40, 50 years, they have days, minutes, moments. She had moments, but it wasn't worth it to go pick her up. It wasn't worth it to give her a hug. It wasn't worth it to tell her about the gospel. Yeah, I won a Pulitzer Prize, but what does it matter? What does it matter? It doesn't. And I think the greatest tragedy in life is we're going to look back one day and say, I was successful in things that don't matter. I want you to be successful. 
But more than anything, I want you to be significant. And when you live for Jesus and you love people, I believe you're going to have a life of significance. And that's what God desires for all of us, is to live a life that has an eternal impact. It's going to require risk for us to do that. But I think what he said really gears us up for the season that we're about to get into. Right around the corner is Thanksgiving and Christmas, and for many it's a great time of the year. For others it's a really difficult time. And I don't want us to be a people that are so consumed with what we need to do that we miss out on the opportunities that God has placed all around us. That's hurting people, broken people. And I don't want us to just be so focused on what we want to do, living for our agenda, that we miss out on the opportunities that God has placed around us to have an eternal impact. That's ultimately what God wants for us. Not to spend all of our energy climbing a mountain only to get to the top and realize that we're on the wrong mountain. But he wants us to live a life with intention and focus, stewarding what he's given us for his kingdom and his purpose. We're doing this not to earn God's love. We're doing this because he's already loved us. And we want to maximize the life that he's given for us. Because if it was all about just getting to heaven, as soon as we receive Jesus, we would be there. But he leaves us here because he wants us to live a life that has eternal impact. Let's pray. God, we thank you.